right, good morning. As Chad said, my name is Ernest Sanders, and I'm one of the elders here at Colonial Heights. My guess is that you were not expecting me to be the one to expound on God's word this morning. Uh, but Chad asked me a few weeks ago if I would be here this week and if I would pray and consider preaching. And so now, obviously, the answer to those questions is yes. And so by God's grace, uh, it's my plan to share with you from his word today, and I'm thankful to be able to do that. So my goal, as he said, is for us to continue in our study of Exodus. And then I'm going to hand the baton back to him next week uh, when he returns. So if you've got your Bibles today, you can be turning to Exodus chapter 13. And as mentioned, we are in a, a long-term study of Exodus. We're going to be there. Uh, the plan is to be there for the majority of this year. So for the last 11 weeks or so, we started at the beginning, and we've just been marching through a little by a little. And at the outset, Chad told us that this study was going to be divided into six smaller subsections or smaller series within the series. He shared with us that his hope, really his prayer for us, is that near the end of the year when we close Exodus, we as a church would be intimately acquainted with the reality of our need for God. Chad has taught us that Exodus is not a book about Moses. It's not about Pharaoh. It's not about Egypt or Israel. But it's really a book that's about God and how God moved according to his plan and in his timing to birth a nation of people for himself. And so based on that imagery of childbirth, uh, the first series within the series was called Preparation for Delivery. And in it, we saw the birth of Moses and how God protected him from birth to adulthood. We saw how God gave Moses a heart for the Israelites and molded him into a leader who would be able to shepherd the people of God. We saw that when Moses went back to Egypt, from his time as a fugitive in Midian to share God's command with Pharaoh to let his people go, that things temporarily got worse for the Israelites instead of better. The second series called Labor Pains, we saw how God used plagues to bring judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their sin and specifically for Pharaoh's hard-heartedness. Those plagues culminated in the deaths of all the firstborn sons of Egypt, both people and animals. But we saw how God spared his own people. He made a distinction between Israel and Egypt. And so he saved his people with the blood of lambs. That, of course, was pointing us forward to Christ, the perfect lamb of God, who would shed his blood on a cross providing salvation for all who would believe. Now we're going to start a new series within Exodus called The Lord Provides. As Israel begins its march out of Egypt and into freedom, we'll see that they're going to have to depend more and more on God as he guides them to the promised land. So today we are going to look at some of those intangible provisions for the journey that God gave them. And my hope is that we're also going to see that the Lord still provides some of these very same things for us today. So if you have made it to Exodus 13, read along with me beginning at verse 17. 
says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So that's God's word for us today. We're going to dive right in. The first thing that I want us to see from this text is that the Lord provides hope by keeping his promises. The Lord provides hope by keeping his promises. Dictionary.com defines a promise as a declaration that something will or will not be done, or as an an express assurance on which expectation is to be based. Now, I've just said that the Lord provides by keeping his promises, so that begs the question, what declaration or assurance has God made to the people of Israel that they can expect to happen? And where do we see in this text that God has delivered on that declaration? Well, I would argue that we see two things here. We see that God has fulfilled a promise in one place of the text, and that God is in the process of fulfilling a promise in another place. And the first one is right at the beginning. Verse 17 starts with the phrase, when Pharaoh let the people go. Now, it could be easy for us to read the beginning of that verse and just view it as an informational clause, something that we need to read to get to the next part of the narrative. And I would agree that by itself, that phrase doesn't mean very much. But we have to look at this in the context of what God has said prior to this point. God had promised that he would deliver the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. In fact, he had told Moses repeatedly that he was going to deliver his people from Egypt, that Pharaoh was going to let them go. Um, As Chad's been saying throughout this series, this is something that has been on repeat. The first time it's recorded is in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses met with God at the burning bush. Verse 8 of chapter 3, God declares, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land. Again, during that same conversation, down in verse 17, God told Moses to go back to Egypt and tell the elders of Israel that God said this, I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt. He even tells Moses that Pharaoh would not initially comply. In verses 19 and 20, he says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. God made some version of this declaration 11 different times between calling Moses at the burning bush and Passover, which we studied last week. 
So in context, we see that this simple phrase, when Pharaoh let the people go, is much more than an informational clause. It's a foundational statement. In it, we see God keeping a promise that he has made repeatedly to his people. Through just a few words, God shows us that when he says something will happen, then it will happen. Right? That's the foundation upon which we build our faith. We can take God at his word. We can trust that he is who he says he is, that we are who he says that we are, and that he will do what he says that he will do. Now, this promise that we've just looked at is really part of a larger promise that God was in the process of fulfilling. And that promise is the covenant that God had made with Abraham. It's referenced a couple of verses down. Look at verse 19. It says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Now, I won't go into all of the details of Joseph's story, but Joseph was Abraham's great-grandson. And he ended up in Egypt, to put it lightly, because his brothers had done him dirty. And that's a light way to put it. But God took the circumstances of Joseph's life, what his brothers had meant for evil, to bring about good and to provide for his people. So a lesson for us as a side note is that whatever the circumstances are of our lives, they don't compare to the circumstances of Joseph's. And if God can take that and he can turn it into good, then whatever you're going through, God can work out for your good and for his glory. The author of Hebrews tells us that when Joseph made his brothers swear to take his bones out of Egypt, that he was speaking by faith about the exodus. It was by faith because he believed what he had heard from his father Jacob and probably what he had heard from his grandfather Isaac that God had promised to make Israel a great nation. And he had promised to give them the land of Canaan a land that they didn't possess, but they just wandered through. Joseph didn't have what we have because of when he was born, he couldn't open a Bible and look and see that God had caused the Israelites to multiply so that they were great in number. He couldn't see that God had executed judgment on Egypt and he was bringing his people out of that land to take them into the land flowing with milk and honey. But what he did have was faith. What Hebrews 11.1 1 defines as the assurance, there's that word again, assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Joseph was sure that God was going to take the Israelites out of Egypt and to the promised land, and he was confident enough in that to instruct his brothers to ensure that the people took his bones too so that he could be buried in the land with his father and grandfather and great-grandfather that God had promised to give them. So in keeping these promises, God gives hope. It's a hope that's not based on wishful thinking or marked by uncertainty. It's not the kind of hope that some of us are going to have tomorrow when we go to work and we say, man, I hope this week is better than last week because last week was kind of tough. It's not the kind of hope 
that says, I hope my relationship with my spouse or my significant other is going to survive because it's never been this bad before. It's not the kind of hope that says, I hope the test results from the doctor are good. It's not the kind of hope that says, I hope my kids are okay when I leave them at school or when they move away to college. No, this is a hope that's grounded in God's faithfulness. It's grounded in the one who declares something and then the something happens. He reminds us here in keeping these promises that we can fully rely on and trust in him. Only God can give that kind of hope. It's the kind of hope that Israel was going to have to rely on time and time again as they journeyed to Canaan. And it's what we need to depend on as we journey through life. So God provides hope by keeping his promises. The second thing that I want us to see from this text is that the Lord provides leadership for his people. Provides leadership. When most folks think about the book of Exodus, whether it's believers or unbelievers, they think about Moses. They think about Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses leading them through the wilderness. Moses leading God's people to Mount Sinai and giving them the Ten Commandments. Moses leading the people of Israel to the Promised Land. But what does Moses say? Moses is the one who partnered with the Holy Spirit to write the book of Exodus. Well, here Moses says in verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Skipping down to verse 18, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. So Moses points us to the truth. Instead of pointing to himself, he points us to God. God is the one who really leads his people. It's God. I think we all know this principle spiritually, but in Exodus, God showed his leadership physically too. Look again at the text of verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day or by night. Don't miss this. The Lord, it's all caps here, so Yahweh, the creator God, the one we've been calling the uncaused cause, went before them. That means he got in front of them, it says, to lead them along the way. We're going to talk more about this pillar in just a few minutes, but I want us to catch something that's not immediately obvious to our modern ears. In ancient times, in areas around the Mediterranean Sea, so places like Egypt and Greece and Arabia and Persia, army leaders would stand in front of their military formations and they would use smoke and fire to signal to the troops marching behind them which way they were going to go. Verse 18 reads that the people of Israel went up out of Egypt equipped for battle. Other translations than the ESV render equipped for battle as in orderly ranks or in battle formation. There's a military connotation to the Hebrew that was used. And so while these human military leaders of the time used natural means to direct the people who followed them, God chose to do so miraculously. It says he was in the pillar 
that appeared as cloud by day and fire by night, showing the people where they should go. So here, as the people of Israel are marching to freedom out of Egypt, their host is lined up, marching out, and God is front and center, giving his people a supernatural visual signal that he is their leader. God is the one who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. God would be the one to lead them across the Red Sea and through the wilderness. God would lead his people to Mount Sinai and give them his Ten Commandments. God would lead the people of Israel to the Promised Land. That's a name for Canaan that itself reminds us that God made the promise and it would be God who fulfilled it. He wouldn't only lead them to the Promised Land, he would lead them into it and conquer it for them and give it to them as their possession from him. Now, I don't want us to sell Moses short. God led the Israelites, and he used Moses. Moses was his human agent, and God had raised him up to lead the people. From Moses, we learn valuable lessons about obedience and about trust, about faithfulness, about prayer. And yes, even leadership. But we can't lose sight of the fact that it is God who leads. God leads. It's present tense because it's still true today. While God led the Israelites and he used Moses then, Christ leads the church and he uses pastors and teachers now. You see this in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul writes, And he, that's God, put all things under his, that's Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. And later in Ephesians 4 of Christ, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So even now, Christ is raising up leaders who lead under his authority for the benefit of his people, for the work of his kingdom to reach the nations for his glory. Do you get the picture? It's all about him. It's not about the human agents that he decides to use. There's another thing about the leadership of God, the leadership that he provides that we can see from these verses. God leads best because God knows best. I'm going to talk to you from a human perspective because that's the one that I'm most familiar with. The route that God chose to take Israel from Egypt to Canaan doesn't make sense. He leads them way out of the way. Uh, if you got a map in the back of your Bible, it probably has uh, what scholars believe was the root of the Exodus and maybe some alternate paths. They're not 100% sure, but all of those lead the people southeast out of Egypt when their final destination was northeast from where they started. It doesn't make sense, but there's a reason for it. God led them that way because he knows his people and he knows his enemies. The text states, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. It was a closer path. 
it was a shorter path. But God knew that the Philistines were on that path. He knew that they were a warlike people who had several fortified cities, and he knew that they would put up a fight. Now, we know that God fights for his people, so even if the Philistines did put up a fight, it wouldn't have been a problem for him. But God knew that that's not what his people needed at that time. He knew that it would be discouraging for them to go straight from slavery right into battle. So in his mercy, he took them another way. God also knew what he was about to do at the Red Sea. He knew that there he was going to get glory over Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army. He knew that he was going to show the Egyptians one more time that he was the one true God and all the idols they believed in were nothing. He knew that he was going to show his people yet again that they can trust and depend on him. Warren Wearsby says of God's leadership in these verses, in his providence, he plans the best way for his people to take. We may not always understand the way he chooses or even agree with it, but his way is always the right way. If you permit the Lord to direct your steps, expect, expect to be led occasionally on paths that may seem unnecessarily long and circuitous. Remind yourself that God knows what he's doing. He isn't in a hurry. And as long as you follow him, you are safe in the place of his blessing. As I look around the room, I know that there are several of you who have taken steps of faith in obedience to where God has called you. And I know that for some of you, the path has been longer than you thought that it would be. It's been harder than you thought that it would be. For some of you, it's been marked with setbacks and stumbling blocks and heartache. My exhortation to you and really to all of us is don't lose heart. Continue to trust in the Lord. Remain faithful to follow him wherever he leads, even if you don't know the path. So God provides leadership for his people. I want us to turn our attention back to the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, and talk about two more of God's provisions. The Lord provides comfort and protection through his presence. I'll reread the last two verses for us. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This pillar is considered by biblical scholars to be something called a theophany. We've heard that word before in the series. Chad taught us about it uh, when we were looking at chapter 3. It's a fancy theological word that in its simplest sense means an appearance of God. But more than that, as Vern Poitras defines it, it is an intense manifestation of the presence of God that is accompanied by an extraordinary visual display. So then this isn't something that simple, simply symbolizes God. It's a visual cue that God is actually there. And we have record all throughout God's word 
of God choosing to miraculously reveal himself in this way. Uh, maybe one of the most well-known of those is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Uh, when the king sentences them to what he thinks is death, he looks down into the flames and he sees a fourth man, someone he says looks like a son of the gods. Well, we know there aren't any gods, but this was God's presence in the fire with his people. We see this in the New Testament as well. Uh, Jesus took three of his disciples up the mountain, and it says he was transfigured. He revealed his glory to them. And we're told that they were overshadowed by a cloud, and from that cloud they heard the voice of God the Father say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Again in the New Testament, on Pentecost, you see the disciples closed in a room, and there's a mighty rushing wind from heaven, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And the visual cue that God is there with them is flickering flames of tongues over their heads. And so God shows up in these miraculous ways throughout God's word. In fact, I said we've seen this before in our time in Exodus. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush and spoke with him. And so here in this text, we see that the pillar was a visual display of the presence of God with the assembly of Israel. And though God's presence is enough, he still graciously provides us other things through it. The easiest for us to see in this text is comfort. And by that, I don't mean coziness or luxury. I mean security and contentment. When I think about that, I think about my son, Ezra. Uh, some of you know him. Uh, some of you saw him this morning, uh, kind of running wild. Uh, but he just turned three years old last weekend. So he was born at a time when things were locking down. And so for the first few months of his life, his entire family was always around him. When he woke up in the morning, the girls weren't at school, so we were all there to greet him. We spent most of the day at home because we were working remotely, and so we were with him all the time through the day. And because there weren't any after-school activities, when it was time for him to go to bed, everybody was there to say goodnight. Right? We gave him a sense of of comfort. Even now, when one of us leaves, he's, he's anxious. He's looking around. He's asking questions. Where's my mommy? Where did daddy go? What about the girls? Right? He can't settle because one of our presences is gone. But when we're all together again, he can calm down as much as a three-year-old boy can calm down. And he can be content. How much greater is the comfort that God's presence provides to his people? The Israelites didn't have to worry that God was going to leave them or forsake them in the wilderness, for the pillar did not depart from before the people. Believers don't have to be anxious that God is going to abandon us in the dry parts of our lives. We find comfort and security in the permanent presence of the Lord. 
For the Israelites, God's presence also provided protection from the elements of the wilderness. They were in a desert. It was a dry place that could get very hot during the day. As Mississippians, we can relate to that when it's 80 degrees in February, right? It got hot. But what we're not as familiar with is the dramatic cool-off that happened at nighttime. God used the pillar of cloud to mercifully shield his people from the hot sun as they journeyed through the day. We can see that more expressly in places like Numbers 10, where we're told the cloud of the Lord was over them by day. And in Psalm 105, which recounts the Exodus, and says he spread a cloud of covering over them. We can relate to that, right? On a hot summer day, when a cloud passes between us and the sun, it's a sweet relief. God was directing that in this pillar as the Israelites journeyed. And I'm sure that on cool nights, the pillar of fire would not only give them light, which in itself was probably comforting in the deep darkness of a wilderness, but he probably also kept them warm and warded off dangerous wildlife. So God used this pillar not only to provide the Israelites spiritual and emotional needs for comfort and security, but he also took care of their physical needs. As believers today, we don't have this same kind of visible guidance or a visual representation of the presence of the Lord but we do have something better. You see, the pillar of cloud and fire was pointing us forward to a more complete fulfillment of God's presence with his people. The pillar points us to Christ and to the Holy Spirit. If the pillar was a visible manifestation of God's presence, then Jesus is a better one. They called his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we're told in Colossians 1 that he is the image of the invisible God. If the pillar guided the people in the way that they should go, how much better is the guidance that we receive from the good shepherd who leads us in the paths of righteousness or the spirit who will guide you into all the truth? The pillar gave light so that the people could travel after dark. Christ proclaims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How much better is that? Our text tells us that the people were, while the people were in the wilderness, the pillar did not depart from before them. But we know that later, when they settled in the promised land, it did leave. But God doesn't leave. Hebrews 13, 5 reminds us that God will never leave you nor forsake you. He dwelled among us when Christ was here. When Jesus rose from the grave and he gave his disciples the great commission and ascended into heaven, God sent another helper to be with you forever. The Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had promised. You see, when it comes to our greatest need, God gives the greatest provision. He gives himself. Earlier, I talked about how God keeps his promises. And I discussed 
some of the aspects of the covenant that he made with Abraham. Well, there's another part of that covenant that we didn't get into. For those of us in the room who aren't Jewish by birth, it's probably more important for us than it was for Abraham. You see, God had also promised Abraham that through his family, he would bless all the families of the earth, the whole world. And here's why we need that blessing more than anything else that we need. God is holy. He is perfect. He is set apart in his perfections. With God, there never has been and there never will be any wrong motives or wrong intentions. No wrong thoughts, no wrong words, no wrong deeds, no wrong period. Only goodness and righteousness. We, on the other hand, we're not like that. Our natural inclination is to be in opposition to God. We often have wrong motives and wrong intentions. We think wrongly, we speak wrongly, we act wrongly. And all that wrong, God calls sin. It separates us from him. It's an offense to God and to his holiness. And the penalty for it is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Suffering the wrath of God, his righteous anger toward sin in a place called hell. But there's good news. The good news is that God kept his promise to Abraham. He did bless the whole world by providing the way of salvation in Christ Jesus. God's very own son, fully God, yet fully man, and still with no sins. He lived a perfect life, and he died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, for my sin, and for your sin. But on the third day, the third day, he rose from the dead. And in doing that, he defeated death sin, hell, and the grave. This is where things get personal. You see, you have to actually receive the blessing. You have to recognize your own great need for salvation and accept God's provision for that need. No one else can do that for you. You receive the blessing by repenting turning away from your sin and yourself, turning toward God, trusting and believing what Christ did on your behalf. When you do that, you'll be saved, no longer separated from God, but reconciled to him. Maybe there are some of you who hear all of this and you realize that you haven't yet received this blessing. You haven't turned away from your sin, trusted in Jesus. Well, today can be your day of salvation. You can call out to God right where you are, confessing your sin and asking for his forgiveness, accepting the provision, the free gift of grace that he gave for you. 
just a little while, there's going to be people at this room to the left. They would be happy to pray with you as you consider this decision. They would love to answer any additional questions you may have, what that means. Or they would just like to celebrate with you if you've just made that decision. And there's some of you who are listening today, and you've already recognized your greatest need. And by faith, you've accepted God's provision for it. You have that hope that's grounded in his faithfulness built on him keeping his promises. You've answered his call to follow him, and you recognize Jesus not just as your Savior, but as the Lord and the leader of your life. You've experienced the comfort and security that comes with the Holy Spirit living in you, God's presence with you forever. But you have a response today, too. Your response is praise worship, and thanksgiving. So stand with me and let's respond to all God is and all he's provided for our Savior.